Feel good, Brian? Okay. All right, so uh, we're going to do our third and final week of Q&A on, on our series on Ephesians today. But before I do, I have a quick kind of personal-ish announcement, and I, I would love your help. If you can help directly or know someone who can, um, our fellows are coming in Labor Day. They always come in Labor Day weekend, and we kick off that Monday. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we go away to the lake. But this is the first year, and like this is our sixth year, and it's the first year that we don't have a lake house with which to visit, with which, at which to visit the lake. So I need a lake house. So I know that there's a lot of people in our church that have a lake house, and maybe that's you. Um, there's eight fellows, and then plus me. Kelly doesn't spend the night, but we need to be able to sleep nine, but we can sleep them tight. It's going to be a tight nine. It doesn't need to be super luxurious. Um, but if you have a lake house or you have a friend who has a lake house, that you think, oh, yeah, it's, it's the week. It's not the weekend. So it's like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights that week. It tends to be kind of low-value weeks or low-value low nights. I would really, really be, be appreciative to hear about that. So if you or somebody you know has a place, they might let eight super wonderful, very godly recent college grads stay out for a, for a kickoff. That's, that week is always huge for us. It's an incredible opportunity to build relationships and to start the, start the community, but we just really need a setting in which to do it. So if you have a lake house, please tell me. Or if you don't, but your friend does, please tell them or tell me and them because um, we, like, we just got to find a place to be. Cool? All right. Second thing is I'm going to tell you this. This is our last week doing our Ephesians series. Next week, we're going to do a, uh, a new series and in preparation for that series, I would like all of you to listen to a podcast that I think is brilliant. It's super well done. Um, you, it, there's three episodes I'd like you to watch. So each episode's like 30 to 40 minutes. Um, and I'd love you to listen to them and think and engage with this. And then we're going to come back in here. We're going to have a discussion about it. The name of the podcast, jot this down, is Every Square Inch. So if you have Spotify or Apple's podcast or whatever on your phone, you can go to Every Square Inch. Uh, and that's, by the way, an allusion to a, um, is it Abram or Abraham? Abraham Kuyper quote. He said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. So the, the theme of the podcast is it's all his. Jesus has dominion over all things, every square inch. And the last three episodes that he did are on racism in America. And he provides, what I've read a ton of stuff in this last, maybe, and maybe you have too, in the last several months, lots and lots of stuff about race and sin and the American experiment and all these things. And what he offers here is I think the most balanced and thoughtful and um, unflinching critique of both evangelicalism uh, and the, uh, I don't know what we would call it, a cultural race theory, or I mean, uh, yeah, critical race theory, thank you, critical race theory, um, which you may or may not know is kind of a lot of the underpinning academic perspective that's, that's suddenly become very predominant in our culture right now. And he does a fantastic job of looking at all of it. Um, and he, he warns you in the first episode that he's probably, you're probably gonna like one episode a lot more than you like the other, but listen, listen to them all. And that's my challenge to you is to go to every square inch, listen to his last three episodes on racism in America, and then let's come back here and have a really good conversation about it. It'll probably take several weeks. It will be worth your time. So like 
I don't know, what do you need to do? Cut your grass, like put it on a podcast and just let it run. Do your dishes, wash, you know, clean your house, do something and, and listen through this and then we'll have a conversation about it. And I'll give you that name again at the end of the podcast in case you miss it, but every square inch, the last three, and then we'll talk more about that. But also, I need a lake house. Groovy? Okay, so um, a couple weeks ago we did Q&A on Ephesians and you guys put in a whole bunch of questions. We've kind of been working away through that, we did spiritual warfare last week. We did kind of a smattering of things the first week and did a recap of Ephesians. This week, I want to give the full hour to really one topic. There are a couple of questions about it. They were phrased like this. Will you settle the question of predestination once and for all, please? Yikes. So I'm, I'm ha- happy to do that. That's my pleasure to do that for you. Um, and on a similar topic, somebody asked, reading Ephesians... Reading Ephesians, it appears that not all people are among the elect. Is this correct? And if so, can these people be saved? Okay, so this is a topic that some of you may have read and studied and thought about this ad nauseum. Some of you might not even be sure exactly what we're talking about. Some might be, you, you love Calvinism, it just makes your heart warm, which would be an, a, kind of a, uh, another label for this doctrine of election or predestination. Others of you are very well aware of it and you hate it wherever you're at, and so that's always, anytime you teach on election or predestination or Calvinism or sovereign grace, any of these things, what's that? Yes, half you love it, half half hate you, okay? And that's okay, Um, but uh, I wanna try to give you, we'll do it in an hour, 45 minutes, we'll try to give it. We've done this before over many, many weeks. Sometimes we'll talk about it in three minutes, so we're gonna try to do the one-hour version of the doctrines of predestination, okay? Now, when we do this, when I've observed people talk about this or teach about this, there is a prevailing error that just very, very often people talk about this and they make a, they make a mistake before the conversation even begins. And that is they, they choose to start in the wrong place. Okay, I would suggest to you it's not possible to have a productive conversation about election, predestination, Calvinism, etc. if you don't really start at the doctrine of depravity. If you start at the doctrine of depravity and at least give that some time to understand what the Bible teaches about this, well, now there's hope that this conversation might go well. But if you don't do that, you're dead in the water. It's never going to go well, okay? So let me, let, me take a, let me take a step back and then try to frame out where we're going with these questions, specifically uh, this question about if, are all people among the elect or are they not? How does that work, okay? So what's the opposite of... Calvinism or the opposite of election or the opposite of predestination. What, what word or phrase do you associate with the opposite of this? Arminianism. Free will, right? Now, some, some have said Arminian. If you know historically Arminian, um, Jacob Arminius was a theologian in like, gosh, like forever ago, 600 AD or something like that, like a long, long time ago. Um, but generally, it's going to be free will or uh, election, free will or Calvinism is generally the way that gets framed out. And I want, to tr- I want to take aim at this concept of free will right out of the gate because the way this tends to exist in people's minds is that there are, if, if you're coming from the free will perspective, that's your start, then either people have a free will, right? And that's like, that's generally like the good guy's side. Like, yeah, we're cheering that people have free will. Or what's the villain of free will, you guys? What is the opposite? From the free will perspective, what's the opposite of that? Okay, right, Calvinism, okay. So, so the opposite of free will is some version of not free, right? 
is some version of slavery, okay? So it's generally framed in people's minds that you either have a free will or you're a puppet on a string and God is running the show, that everything's a joke, it's a whole thing is a game, that you are a slave, as it were, to some master puppeteer and his name is Yahweh, okay? So either we have a free will or we're puppets on a string that God is controlling. That's, that's the way the thing tends to exist in people's minds, okay? I would like to suggest to you, in fact, I want to just declare, I don't want to make any suggestions, I want to persuade you and argue that that framing is very unhelpful, it's very fraudulent, and is not going to advance the conversation, okay? The biblical alternative to free will is slavery, but it's not slavery to God. It's slavery, say it again. Slavery to sin, okay? So when we ask the, if we ask the question, is man free or is some other circumstance the case? I'm, I want to I try to persuade you that there is some other circumstance that is the case. We are lost people are not free. Lost people are not free. Lost people do not have a free will. But it's not because God is a great marionette runner dude it's because people are slaves to sin. And the biblical data to support that claim is overwhelming. Okay? Men, women, children, born into this world, we are born into a condition that is best described as slavery to sin. It's not the case that God is preventing anyone from coming into heaven because he is cruel and tyrannical. It is the case that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see. It is the case in Ephesians 2 that we were dead, dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. When we followed the ways of this world, the ruler, the kingdom of the air, the spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. It is true that we were by nature objects of wrath. And so what I want to do is, is draw from you guys this morning a quick survey on the biblical condition of mankind. If we don't do this, if we don't do this well, and if you don't really pause to say, what do I think is actually the case of the nature of everybody who's ever lived? What is, where, where do we begin this game? Then this, again, this conversation goes off the rails. So, I just gave you two, or I just gave you Ephesians, well, really one, Ephesians two, I think is the only one I quoted. Um, where would you go to make a biblical case for the, for the, the nature of mankind since the fall? What other passages may have, you, have you perhaps heard that answer the question, is man free to do good? Is man capable of choosing God? Is man capable of exercising faith? What are, what are the texts that speak to that? None righteous, no, not one. Okay, so Bob's going to Romans 3. There is, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And really what Romans... Turn there for a second, because this is kind of like the mother of all passages. Romans 3 is actually a kind of a, I don't know, a compendium, I guess, an amalgam of all sorts of, uh, uh, let's see, we're going to go down here, let's see, verse mm, 10, we'll start there, Romans 3, 10, this is a bunch of Old Testament quotes that he's just going to string them all together, okay, and when he finally gets here, he's been building this case, it starts in chapter 118, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men, and he just builds this, this case of judgment, and his, his kind of final, you got to see the prosecutor in the courtroom, and his final appeal to the jury as he's making his case here is, as is Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's no one righteous, 
not even one. There's no one who understands. So it's not just that you don't do good things. You don't even, this is beyond your grasping. No one understands. No one who seeks God. Do you believe that's true? That no one left to themselves will seek him, will pursue him, will choose him. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues, the Quig was talking about, tongues practice deceit. Sometimes it's their fingertips. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, that's one of the densest, and every one of those is an Old Testament quote, and he's just kind of stringing them all together. So Romans 3 is one, we're not going to unpack them, we're just going to kind of let the emotional weight of it all sit on you. So Romans 3, where else? Isaiah 53, I think. We all like sheep have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way. Very good. So, and Ephi- uh, not Ephesians, uh, Isaiah 53 is the famous, it's the fourth servant song, this great picture of the cross, one of the clearest pic- depictions of the crucifixion in the Old Testament. And uh, yes, we all like sheep have turned astray. We've turned to our own way. Good, where else? Yeah, Dan? Romans 6. Okay, Romans 6 would be, if, if Romans 3 is the most kind of like, just kind of verbose, Romans 6 is probably like the clearest bullseye on this. So, when he, Paul and Paul is building the case, and by the way, the most if you really want to understand the doctrine of sovereign grace of election and predestination, I think the best thing ever written to that end is Romans. Um, he says, and see where, where should we pick it up? Um, it's a whole long arc. It's hard to jump into the middle of Romans, but we'll start at verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we continue to sin because we're not under law but grace? By no means. And listen to this, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, then you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God. He's talking to believers here. Though you used to be slaves to sin. You used to be. You were. Many are. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You're being set, you're, the, the fact that you're set free from sin is, you know, ipso facto, you were a slave to sin. This is the basic nature. Not free. You'll, you'll find zero, zero passages in the Bible that affirm the freedom of humanity and countless passages that affirm our slavery to sin until if Christ sets you free, then you're free indeed. But then and only then. Yeah, faith? In that verse, the phrase, offer yourselves. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely does. Absolutely. Okay, so Faith said, does, that, does the statement, offer yourselves, doesn't that imply a choice? And 100% it does. Um, and, it, okay, we're going to get, this gets ahead. I'll just give you a sneak peek in case you're, in case you're like sitting on attack. When I say, I, I, I hope I've been careful to say, you've heard me say, that lost people are slaves to sin. But once you are set free from that slavery, I believe you, Faith, have free will because you are in him. He has set you free. And so now you are in a position of freedom and a position to make genuine. You can actually choose, genuinely choose to do good. So you're saying that that verse is referring to current believers. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, so, well, absolutely. When, when, Paul, when, Paul, when Paul is talking in Romans, he's talking to believers. And so when he says, verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be Christian, a slave to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were trusted. You've been set free. You become slaves to righteousness. But in, in the whole thing, he's saying, listen, you, you used to be this way and you would choose it every time, but now you can make a better choice. Something has changed and you can still choose to do evil. That happens, right? Like earlier today, probably. But you can also choose to do good. So we make, we have genuine free choices. And I would say, well, we'll get here, we'll get here down the road. I think our, our freedom begins the moment of regeneration, which may not make sense yet, but hopefully it'll make sense before the end of the hour. So stay put, because there is another free choice that gets made. Kelly? Sure, yeah. Yes, um, okay, let me see. Let me do that, let me, let me wait. I'm gonna get a couple more passages of scripture on the table and then we'll say, well, how, is it really so, so bad? Okay, so first, and I'm watching the clock here, you guys, so we gotta try, I'm trying to build a real quick case, but there's a lot of texts that, that establish this, our, our, the fundamental slavery to sin. Michael? Yeah, John 8. <coughs> okay, great. In fact, you kind of alluded to this quick. John 8, 34. You wanna read it real loud? Very good. So Jesus, Jesus has a number of real zingers on this, right? Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Give us some, um, go, keep going, go John 8, well, I'll, I'll do it here because I've got it, because I got the microphone. Listen to this, John 8, 42. Uh, hang on, 8, 42. In this whole passage in John 8, that what Quig was teaching has a lot of stuff about this. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Listen, why is it not? Because you're unable to hear what I say. All over the place, there's the language of incapacity. They're blind. They cannot see. You're deaf. You cannot hear. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Are people living out purely their own desire? No. They're slaves of Satan. And they want to carry out his desire. There's been a linking of these things. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. This language here that you want to carry out your father's desire, Paul makes this very pointed in one of, what I think is one of the most important passages on this topic. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2. Go to, go to that. 2 Tim 2. And, uh, He's, he's basically telling Timothy how he needs to behave and how he needs to engage with his opposition, with those that are throwing rocks at him, literally throwing rocks at him, those that are opposing the work. And he says, Timothy, listen, it's gonna, there's going to be opposition everywhere, but here's what you do. Just, just take the hit and listen to me. He says, those who oppose him, or oppose you in this case, Timothy, those who oppose him, well, I'll start at verse 24, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that, listen to this, God will grant them repentance. Okay? Again, we're getting a little bit out of sequence here. I'll cover this in a minute. But God gives repentance. The one thing he requires of us is that we would repent. 
And even that is a gift. He gives you the ability to say, ah, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Even that is a gift. That God grants them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Remember, they couldn't understand. They couldn't see. They're deaf. They're blind. He does something to intervene to give repentance, to help them grasp, to see, to understand. And look at verse 26. This is so important. And they, this is the, the opposition, that they come to their senses and they escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. They're captive to a very specific will. This is not free will, you guys. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is oppositional to the concept of free will, and it's entirely consistent with an enslaved will, not enslaved to the marionette that is God, but enslaved to Satan. They've take, he's taken them captive to do his will. This is our base nature. Now, we can walk through, and we can see this over and over and over again. Anybody else got one or two more you want to just hit before we move on? To give you? Okay, wait. Titus 3? Yes. Okay, you want, you, want to, you want to do that, or do you want me to do that? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. Listen, listen to these words. Listen to this language, and then we'll go to Jesse. Titus three three. You yourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Sounds like my life. Passing our days in malice and envy, hating by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Right, And those first four, what are they, adjectives? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Yours had one slightly different, it must be like ESV. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Living in malice and envy. This is a, this is a parallel, by the way, to Ephesians 2. This language of kind of, it's, it's a, there's these two great before and after pictures in the epistles. Ephesians 2 and Titus 3. Before, dead in our transgressions and sins, fall in the ways of the world. Before, just foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. And then the after picture is that he's made us alive. Everything's been transformed. That before picture is really important to have a clear answer on that. And then, Jesse, you get the final shot on this. I was going to say that one. Oh. I could also say 1 John 1.8. Okay, excellent. You want to give us that real loud? Yeah, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, now think about that. That is talking to Christians, right? And so, though we used to be foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved in Christ, that's all been changed. We now have access to all these things. But as we were talking about with faith, we can still voluntarily go back into that. And though I'm no, I've, I have been set free from sin, it doesn't follow then that I haven't sinned in the last 30 years by any means. Right Now, it's almost like I no longer have the excuse of my slavery because I'm voluntarily moving back into these things in, in some regard. Okay, So with all that said, we, and we could... We could we could talk about a lot of this and then you could go back and you could really chew on this. But if, if you get to the point that this biblical picture that men love the darkness and won't, well, in fact, let me, I'm lying. I just want more. Give me, let, me give you, let me give you John 3 because this is Jesus' own words. And let me, this maybe is really important. John 3, go to like, I don't know, 20, 19, 18, something like that. Um, we'll go 18. Whoever, uh, uh, okay, 18. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Listen to this. Light has come into the world. It's great news. But 
men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. It's a big deal, okay? Jesus has lots of language on this. John 6 is full of this, that you can't, you won't, they just won't, okay? If you accept that as a starting point, if you see this picture, not just in the scriptures, but in the world, and not just in the world, but actually in you, and you say, well, if God were to tell everyone, all right, the door's wide open, everybody come on in, who would come on in? It would be no one. There's no one who seeks God. They can't hear it. They can't see it. They're deaf, blind, they're dead. They won't. And if that's your starting position, if you kind of if you read through the scriptures on this and you realize, oh my soul, I would never have come unless he jumped in and intervened. Well, now we're like, well, is there any other way? If you if you treasure your free will above all else, and you think that God treasures your free will above all else, despite the absolute vacancy of any biblical data to support that claim, that you're, and you've got to understand that your freedom is limited to rebellion. If all that God, if God loves, I just want, I will have no one worship me that hasn't freely made that choice. No one would ever worship him. And it's not because he's not lovely. It's not because he's not worthy of worship, but it's because there's something dreadfully, tragically wrong with us in our base nature. And God comes to a group of people who will not have him. And he devises a way to reach in and to pull them out of their stupor to change this thing that is so corrupted in them so that they might actually, freely, genuinely love him. And now we're going to move to the next point, okay? So uh, there's five key points, classically the way we frame out Calvinism. Total depravity is what we've been talking about. The next is you. Do anybody know what you stands for? Brett, are you answering a question or are you asking? It is, very good. So we'll, we'll do this and then I'll let you speak. So total depravity, unconditional election, L, limited atonement. That's a sketchy one. I, irresistible grace. And then P is perseverance of the saints. My hope here is to give 15 minutes to unconditional election. We're going to skip over limited atonement. We're going to talk about irresistible grace. And we're going to skip over perseverance just for the sake of time. Okay. But first, Brett, and then we're going to do a, so we depravity. Whether you believe me or not, the biblical case I think is rich. Go ahead and, go ahead and research this. Okay. But Brett. Okay, so, uh, okay, sure. Okay, so Brett's question is, is in this passage that we just quoted, you're probably looking at John 7, is that the one you're talking about? Or, or, I mean, John 8, excuse me, probably, probably John 8 is what you're talking about. So when Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees and he's like, listen, you're of your father, the devil, you can't hear me, you don't understand this. 
question is, is he trying to persuade them or is he simply stating a fact? He's just saying, you know, hey, you know, you're left out. You're, you're, you're a goner here because you can't. Or is he, or is he seeking to woo them? And I, Brett, my understanding of this would be that he is not only stating a declarative fact, but he is using the normal means to persuade people. That faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. And the means by which God has ordained to override that rebellion, to reach in and to break that, that bondage to sin, is, is, is a combination of two things. There's the external verbalization of the word, the proclamation of the, of the scriptures, of the gospel, and the internal work of the Holy Spirit. That these are the means. And so Paul, who, is, who literally wrote the book on God's sovereign grace, who literally, I mean, literally, we, what we know about election, the vast majority of it we know through, well, not the vast majority, but a substantial majority of the theological development on this is written from, from Paul, is the one guy who would go into town after town after town to verbally explain the gospel, until people threw stones at him until they thought he was dead, and then he would you know, wipe himself off and go into the next town and do it again. So Paul, who believed that only God can override the deadness in a heart, believed that the means by which God would override a dead heart was the verbal proclamation of the gospel. And so exactly what Jesus is doing in that moment or in any moment is perhaps beyond me, but the normal way that Jesus and the apostles and we are to proceed is to not say, well, they're deaf, so I'm not going to talk to them, but to say they're deaf, so I will talk to them, believing that that is the means that God uses to put faith into a heart. But we are getting ahead of ourselves to the irresistible grace. Okay, so, let me, so let's keep going. So, One thing that you said in the past on total depravity I thought was real helpful is distinguishing it to utter sure. aspect of our life is touched rather than everything we do is Yes, okay. So Bob, Bob is making a distinction between total depravity and utter depravity. And this kind of touches back to Kelly's question that if sin were blue, we would be blue all over. But we wouldn't be the deepest shade of blue. Every area of our lives, intellect, emotion, and will, has been marked by sin. But it doesn't follow that all I want to do every day is murder as many people as I can, right? Like, that's not, that's not the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of depravity is it's not utter depravity. It means that everything that is, is constantly in a full-fledged, you know, mature wickedness, but rather that every part of my, my emotional life is untrustworthy. My intellectual life is prone not just to error, but to selfish error, right? That my volition, there's things that maybe I want to do, but the good I want to do, I don't, don't know. The evil I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Very Romans 7. That every part of my life is broken. But it doesn't follow that all I'm ever doing is the wickedest thing that can possibly be done. Yeah. Okay, Darren, and then we're going to keep moving. How does the problem of evil fit into this? In other words, the only way God could stop a child from being the victim of a crime would be if we were all puppets. Okay, so yes, yeah, so God, God could intervene and override the problem of you. I, I think, I think Cal, if, if you pardon me, I think Calvinism is going to be enough of a mess for me to solve in the next 27 minutes without throwing the problem of evil on top. I think that will, that will blow up our time constraints. So there are implications to all these things, but I want to finish this framework, okay? So the Bible makes a strong case that people are depraved. The Bible makes a very strong case as well that God chooses out of this mass of humanity to show mercy to some undeserving people. 
And I recognize that it is the sum is like the thing that makes everybody lose their minds. But just listen to the way the Bible speaks, okay? Generally speaking, what you will find is the data that supports what I'm saying is biblical. It is straight Bible texts. And the data that contradicts what I'm saying is philosophical. You don't like it, so you don't think it's true. But just listen to what God has said in his word. So let's see, where can we, well, in fact, I got a handful of these, a whole bunch of this, but can anybody think of texts that affirm the idea, not depravity, not irresistible grace, but this idea that God chose you, that God picks and draws and sovereignly overrides the rebellion of some? Can you think of any of that? Because there's a ton of scripture on this. Ephesians 1, all right, this is the passage we looked at, right? Go ahead. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do all the reading because of the masks and the sound and everything else. So Ephesians 1 says, uh, verses 4, he chose us, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. The very plain meaning of those words, he is the subject of the verb. We are the objects of the verb. In salvation, we often like to put ourselves as the subject of the verb, but we are always the object. He saved us. He chose me. He predestined me. He made known to us the mystery of his will. It's all of him. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity conformity with the purpose of his will. How about this? Go to John 6. You might be thinking of others, but listen to the way that Jesus speaks here. John chapter 6. Go to, uh, let's see. Like toward the end here. There's actually a fair bit about this, but um, he says in verse 44, no one can come to me. We've seen that. No one can come to me unless, oh, there's a condition. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. And everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Where else can you think of? There's a ton of this. Maybe I should have printed this all up for you, give you some study notes. Romans 8, okay. So now John's going to take us kind of deep into the heart of this whole thing. So go to Romans 8. We'll pick it up. Uh, Go to 28. We'll we'll do that. Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know, let's see, yeah, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
Now, sometimes people get caught up in verse 29. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. So what does that phrase mean, you guys? Those God foreknew, he predestined. Does it mean that God looked into the future and he saw, he knew, he could see Cheryl's going to believe. He, he, he goes through and he sees, he looks at Brett and he keeps going, he sees Whitney right now. He, look, he goes down the line and he, he foresees, he foreknows and he says, oh, elect, 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 because he sees the decision they're going to make. Could that be the case? Why not? Because if he looks down the quarter of time to see who's going to choose him, Quig, Nobody, right? He's going to look down and be like, all right, everybody who's going to choose me, I'm going to choose them because they're going to choose me, which itself is nonsensical. But if that were the case, vast millennia of no one choosing him. Vast millennia of men, women, and children saying, I'm not interested, thanks, no. It doesn't mean that he foreknew what they would do. Because there was nothing there to know. There was no doing to see. What is this? He foreknew them. It's a, it's a pre-existing relationship. The, the, those that he has showed his love and grace to, he predestines. And then he calls. And then he justifies. And then he glorifies. And I know this is tricky. This is really tricky. Especially when you happen to love somebody and you don't know. You don't know. Is God going to draw them to faith? Your deepest longing, perhaps, is for somebody that you love, that they would come into his saving grace. And you're like, and I don't know. Is he elect? Is she elect? Is God going to ultimately show this grace? What we know is that they're depraved. What we know is that they love things more than they love Jesus. And we know that Jesus has been unimaginably kind to us. That he has saved millions from a sea. Billions, who knows what the final tally is going to be from a sea of rebels. We know that he has called us to preach the gospel because it's through the preaching of the gospel that he accomplishes this end. We know that he has never, there's nowhere in the Bible ever anything that gives a hint to our being able to predetermine whom he has elected. There's nothing anywhere in the Bible that says, you know what, they're probably not elect, so don't waste your time, right? You see nothing like that. Instead, you see endlessly the call to take the gospel and to preach it broadly to every creature. Literally, we're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. The very end of Mark's gospel. Preach the gospel to every creature. In Matthew's, it's to every nation. In Mark, it's to every creature. We go, we go broadly to everyone we can. Not only that, but we go and we suffer. Paul says, listen to this. Go, to, go, to, uh, go back to 2 Timothy. I think it's chapter 2. It might be chapter 1. He says in 2 Tim. Uh, let's see, bear with me. Uh, yeah, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Interesting. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
Paul knows that God will save this one and this one and this one. And that's the reason he does it. Because he knows that God has people that he, has called, that he will call to life. And so he's going to do it no, matter what it. no matter what it costs him, he's going to do it. Many, I think, have said, well, if God's going to do it anyway, then I'm out. I'm going to check out and trust him to do it. And Paul, that makes no sense to Paul. He's like, no, 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 no. The reason we do evangelism is because there's a guaranteed result. Because God in his grace will rescue, will redeem and so that's why we go into it, because we believe that God has chosen. So let me, let me show you one of the most interesting places where this gets fleshed out. Go to Acts chapter 17, um, and, or Acts 18, actually. Go to Acts 18, and Paul goes to Corinth, and he has a really hard time there, you guys. Like, he's been, he's been getting his teeth kicked in, like city after city after city. When he finally gets to Corinth, he just doesn't want to play anymore. It's been too long, too much pain. And I just want to get out. And uh, in verse 6, Acts 18.6, it says, When the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his own clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. That's a big deal. Paul doesn't want to play anymore. Like he's had it, and he's really tired of the Jews in particular. He says, No deal. I'm gone. That resolve lasts for one verse. In verse 7, Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and a Jew, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Okay? He is, for, even, when it, even when the pain is great, he preaches the gospel because he knows there are elect, but he's afraid. He doesn't want to play anymore, and it's painful, and so God speaks to him. Verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid. Why do you tell somebody not to be afraid? Because they're afraid, right? Do not be silent. Keep on speaking. Paul doesn't want to keep speaking. It's hurt. It hurts. Every time he opens his mouth, somebody punches him. And then God gives a reason. For I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you. I have many people in this city. When God tells Paul, I have many people in this city. Do you know what he's saying to him? You know what that means? It means there are elect persons in Corinth. You stay in the game, Paul. You preach the gospel and there will be fruit. It's going to matter. In a billion trillion years, your suffering will still be bearing fruit because there are people, I have people in this city and it's your job to tell them. So stay in the game. I have people in this city, that's a, that's a reference to election, that there are people that will believe. Well, what's curious about this is the, in the rest of the book of Acts, I mean, rest, yeah, of this, in Acts, when, he, when Paul's here in Corinth, um, we don't see the conversion take place. You don't see it. You're like, well, I thought there were people. What's really fascinating is earlier in the chapter, Paul led the uh, synagogue ruler to Christ. We see here in verse 7, Paul left the synagogue, went next door, and Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believes in the Lord. Okay? What do you think happens when you're the synagogue ruler and you become a Christian? You lose your job, okay? So he gets replaced by this other dude named Sosthenes. And if you keep going on in, chapter, in, in Acts 18, you see this guy named Sosthenes leads this attack against Paul. Um, let's see. It is in verse, I don't know. Let's see. 
Verse 14, we'll pick it up. Paul's about to speak. Gallio says to the Jews who are making a ruckus, if you're making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. He has them ejected from the court. And then verse 17, they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and they beat him in front of the court. Okay? It's not clear who they is. It's either the Romans are beating him up for causing a ruckus or it's the Jews that are beating him up because he's embarrassed them in front of it. But then the thing ends and Paul stays in Corinth and then he leaves. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, becomes a Christian and, and takes off. Sosthenes, the new synagogue ruler, leads an attack on Paul. But then, did you know that Paul wrote a book to these people in Corinth and it's called 1 Corinthians? Go, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to see this because this is amazing. If I had asked you who wrote 1 Corinthians, you'd probably know the answer to that. It's Paul. But look at 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Holy moly. Like Sosthenes, the replacement synagogue ruler in Corinth, comes to Christ because, and I quote, I have many people in this city. And this is the thing that drives Paul on. Everywhere he goes, there is a riot, but there's also a revival. There is death, but there is also life. He says, we, we smell like Jesus. To some we're the fragrance of life, to others the stench of death. And who is equal to such a task? But Paul is driven forward, believing that he, if he suffers all things for the sake of the elect, that God will draw the elect to faith, and he wants to be in on the game. Okay? All right. So total depravity. That's your snapshot of total depravity. That's your snapshot of unconditional election. Let's at least give a couple minutes to irresistible grace. What does the word irresistible mean to you guys? Can't, re thank you, very good. Can't resist it. In Charlie language, can't help it, right? Can't help it, all right? What does that mean? You have to have it. Irresistible grace. Name something that's irresistible to you. Ice cream. Ice cream, amen. Hot buttered rolls, okay. Gravity. What is it? Mater sandwiches, okay, all right. It's all food, basically, okay. So, does the concept of irresistible feel coercive to you? It doesn't, right? Nobody said, like, I find, you know, paying my taxes irresistible. You, it was all weird food stuff that you happen to like, okay? When something is irresistible, what, what that means is that the beauty of it, the delightfulness of it, the splendor, the yumminess, whatever it is, is so great that you will have it freely, but certainly. The doctrine of irresistible grace is not that God will coerce you into belief. And oftentimes it's framed out in these terms that like, you know, like the, because God doesn't want robots who have been forced to love him, he gives us free will. Well, that's, a, that's just a false construct, right? I was a slave to sin, and I would not choose him. And then he fixed the broken thing in me so that I could actually freely, for the first time, see how beautiful he was, see how delightful he was, and then I went to him. Of course I went to him. Not because he coerced me to go to him, but because I saw him as he is. And he is actually irresistible. Well, oftentimes, I, I work, spent my entire life working with college students and now with fellows. And the, the primary 
illustration I try to use this with these guys, and it works better with the men than with the women, I will confess, is that on your wedding night, is anybody going to coerce you to have sex with your bride? The answer is no. But are you going to? Absolutely. Completely. Yes. Yes. And why is that? It is because you will find her irresistible, right? The grace of the Lord, what he offers to us here, is not that he coerces us and forces us to take him, but we find him delightful and we move to him freely. And so back to kind of what we were talking about, uh, faith, um, I don't think it's merely the case that Christians exercise a free will once they become Christians, but the actual moment of exercising faith is in fact a free choice. That everyone, if you, are, if you love Jesus, if you walk with him, that choice to walk with him and love him, paradoxically, it was free. It was immediately preceded by the regenerating power of the Spirit so that you could see his delight, see his beauty. But once you saw it, you wanted it and you took it because he is irresistible. Absolutely. Could, oh, I'm sorry, could the status of... Like non-elect to elect, like perhaps oh. grant them repentance. I mean, what, what does that language mean? Uh, yeah, okay, so what Faith is saying, that the Second Timothy 2 passage, that, that the Lord's servant must not quarrel, he's kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. He does all these things in the hopes that God will grant them repentance. Um, I, don't, I don't think that it is the case that God changes his mind on that, but I am certain that it is the case that I have no idea what his initial intentions were. Right, So the, I think that perhaps there is Paul's acknowledgement that he, he does not know who is and is not elect, who will or will not respond. There's a, there's a famous quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, if the elect had a yellow stripe on their shirt tails, we would be running about the streets of London untucking people's shirts. But as it is, they do not. And so we preach the gospel to everyone. And so... I think Paul's perspective there is, I have no idea what God is going to do. Um, we are probably conditioned to see the, the most rebellious and wicked and oppositional people and say, well, they're probably not elect. And Paul, I don't think he had that perspective because he's constantly seeing people that are throwing rocks one minute coming to Christ another. If you had been at the University of Virginia about 40 years ago, you would have known, you might have known this infamous frat boy who would never come to Christ, but who is presently your pastor, right? Right? Did you look like a Christian before you were a Christian? No. At all? No. I mean, not even a little bit, right? And so, uh, so I think that's all, all that Paul is saying there is that we, we don't know. But I do think that God knows the end from the beginning and has known his eternal purposes. That he loved us and he chose us. The language here is before the creation of the world, before the foundations of the world. But human history is working itself out for us. And what that, what that gives us is a confidence that God is absolutely bringing things to pass as he intends to. But also the profound humility that my knowledge is like a fraction of a fraction of that. I mean, it's, it's basically total ignorance of what God's purposes are. And so I don't, wor- I don't concern myself to know that. 
And instead, I want to be faithful and obedient to what he's given me to do, trusting that he will use it as he sees fit in the right time. So I want to show you some scripture on, his, on, on irresistible grace, though. But Jennifer, and then we're going to do some Bible. I just want to say that on BBN radio station at 11 o'clock every night is a, TV, is a radio show called Unshackled. And these are just horrible these. lives that um, find, you know, God reaches out to them. And then we laugh because they all end up going to Bible school. That's where they find out about them, yeah. But, but it, you know, talking about turning lives around, it's an, it, some of it's very difficult to listen to. But Set free from Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly, I mean, and, and we, partly we love these stories of someone who's in this amazing life of debauchery. But, of course, what you want is your, you want your kids to come to Christ out of like a very you know, benign, everything's fine, but they didn't know Jesus and now they do, right? And so by whatever means, whether you're saved out of some, you know, obviously gross immorality or something not quite so obvious as that, his, his grace is real in, in all these cases. Yeah, so Paul comes as a Pharisee, right? I mean, his hand, he's hands clean, but he hated Jesus and God, and God rescued him. Oh, and by the way, I'll just real quick mention this, and then we're going to look at a couple of scripture passages. If you doubt the doctrine of sovereign grace, if you doubt uh, election, just do consider, just consider this. The guy who wrote the book on this, Paul, right? The guy that wrote Ephesians, that wrote Romans, the guy from whom we get so much of this data. If anybody in the history of the world was sovereignly saved, it was Paul, okay? And when, is that, is that fair to you? Like, if anybody was ever, like, had wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus, and Jesus said, yo, and flipped him around, it was Paul, okay? He goes, literally, he's blinded, his eyes are open, he sees, and his life is transformed. And when Paul is writing, if, if you're questioning, well, what did Paul mean when he said this? Well, he was probably influenced by his own experience. And in Paul's own experience, he was living in complete animosity to Jesus, and God chose him picked him up and said, look at me, worship me. And Paul saw him in his beauty, right? So Paul is undoubtedly influenced by his own conversion experience. Even if, if Calvinism has never been true, it was true at least once, right? And I think it's been true a gajillion other times. Okay, so just a couple. Uh, John 5, 21, let's look at that. A couple of things, just real quick, give you some, some of these chair passages on the irresistibility of his grace says, um, 521, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. You might look at uh, John 6, 37. Let's go down a chapter. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All of them. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. All of them. How about this? Acts 16. Look at this. Acts 16, 14. 
because I might know Lydia. One of those, well, let's see, verse, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down, we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart. He gave her an ability she previously didn't have to respond to Paul's message. And when she and her, family, her members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And, we pers- and she persuaded us. And she comes. How about this? 2 Corinthians 4. This is a, one of my favorite passages. 2 Co. 4.4 says... The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Okay, that's depravity. They can't see it. The God of this age, that's not God, that's the devil. The God of this age has blinded their minds. But So what do we do in that situation? Verse 5, Brett, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So we go into this and we're like, we're we're talking to blind people. We're talking to deaf people. And look what happens in verse six. For God who said, quote, let light shine out of darkness. What's he quoting there? When did God say, let light shine out of darkness? It's Genesis 1.1. He says, okay, so they're blind. And you, you feel like if you're talking to somebody who's blind, well, what hope is there and them ever being able to see. So, well, hang on. Don't you remember when God made the world, there was darkness, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, that same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. No problem. God has no more difficulty making a blind person able to see his supremacy than he did making, you know, 25 trillion billion suns by the word of his mouth. He makes light out of darkness all the time and he will do it here. And that if he has chosen to show mercy to someone who hates him, to show grace to an unbelieving sinner and bring them into a place of belief, it's like, it's like no sweat. He does it all the time. The only thing about this that is weird, I think the strangest thing about this whole system is that the means by which he does it all is us. He is sovereign over the end and he is sovereign over the means And the means by which this thing happens is the verbal proclamation of the gospel. Is you talking to your next door neighbor? Is you inviting them to come to church? Is you sitting down and having a conversation? Is you leaning in and listening and showing kindness in their brokenness? All these things. It is this. We. It is the very next words he says. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's amazing. That it's just the foolish, idiotic preaching of the gospel is the means by which he draws men and women out of darkness and into light. Okay, my hour is up, so we're going to stop right there. All this stuff, obviously, you can do this so much more. But that's your quick, your quick survey here. That yeah, we're slaves to sin, yet he he chooses to overwhelm that, and when he does make that choice. He always gets his man, not by verse of, not by means of coercion, but by his own irresistibility. His beauty and delightfulness is itself compelling. And so, the sum of this, ironically, I uh, will quote one of my favorite hymns by my favorite, absolutely not a Calvinist hymn writer, 
John Wesley, who said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. That was point one. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the gospel. This is how it works. And if you're going to write a really good song, you've got to pretend to be a Calvinist. Okay. That's all. Thanks, friends. Oh, oh, every square inch. Every square inch. Three episodes on racism in America. Please do listen. We're going to have a really good conversation over these next several weeks, but I need you to hear it. And share that thing. I think it's a better world if people are listening and thinking about these things. So please listen. Tell your friends to listen to it and invite them to join us for a conversation next week. And what's the other thing? I need a lake house. So hook me up. Okay, that is all. Thanks. Amen. Who in your life is God calling that you may not know that you have a friendship with, that you work with, that you do hobbies with, that your kids hang out with? And you say, hey, come explore with me uh, this great 